receive uh, these, uh, these songs uh, and our prayer and, and the needs of our heart and that you would meet us with your grace. And that, Lord, now that as we look at your word, that you teach us and guide us and convict us and comfort us and help us in every way possible. Uh, for, Lord, we have gathered here by your grace in need of your mercy to glorify you And we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a powerful work in our lives today, for it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you're seated, if you'll take your Bibles uh, and and, uh, find your way over to the Gospel of John, if you're a little bit new to Bible study, just find yourself over in the second part of the Bible that we refer to as the New Testament, and the Gospel of John is the fourth book that you'll find. You'll find four books that are all named by the guys who wrote them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And today we're going to look at another passage here in the very first chapter of the Gospel of John about the idea of temptation and testimony. Uh, have you, you, you've probably heard the phrase before, your reputation precedes you. Uh, maybe you've thought about uh, there was a, a famous athlete or there was somebody who was a big shot in the company that you worked for, or maybe it was just somebody that it was in kind of your circle, your social circle that you heard a lot about. And, and when you met them and you started hearing a little bit about them, that phrase ran through your mind of, well, this person kind of, their reputation kind of precedes them. And every once in a while, we'll meet somebody whom their reputation precedes them that they don't live up to that reputation. You know, it's a little, let, a little bit of a letdown, a little bit of a disappointment. Maybe if you've ever met like a, a, an actor or a famous singer or a famous athlete, and you thought, oh, well, this person has an, a reputation of being a really nice person. And then you met them, and you kind of felt a little bit blown off by them. You, you didn't feel like you were, they, they were kind of looking past you to see if there was anybody else more important in the room, uh, you know, that they could talk to. Sometimes that, when a person does that, it, it, it puts a real sour taste in our mouth because we had this reputation. There was somebody that had told us about this person, and we really had our hopes up about who it is that we're going to meet. Well, John the Baptist that we're going to see here in the Gospel of John, and these are two different guys named John, John the Baptist is, is the guy who he is going ahead in order to make sure that people are prepared to meet somebody else that's coming behind him. And when, he, and when we find him here in this passage, he is faced with, uh, with the, the choice between temptation and testimony. So here in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, and I'm going to read down through verse 34. It says, This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? Now, now so... John has become somewhat of, a, of, of an outcast and kind of an oddity across the Jerusalem landscape. People have heard about this guy, and so the priests and the Levites are sent from the religious leaders in Jerusalem to find out who is this guy. Verse 20, he didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. Well, what then, they asked, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Well, who are you then? They asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, 
I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Well, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, well, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. And all this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist has this unusual and strange kind of role in human history. As I've described him in one of the previous messages this month, which these have been some really great services this month, uh, the engagement of worship that you've had, uh, the, the blessing that the Spirit has given us uh, to fill us and to guide us and to help us make the right spiritual decisions during this month uh, that has kept us away from selfishness and has propelled us toward uh, kind of a ministry and a gospel-centered focus. It has been a beautiful thing to watch uh, us be able to collectively, as a church family, you know, just engage this message here in the first chapter of John. And this guy, John the Baptist, is not a normal character. I mean, he, uh, there's nothing clean-cut about him. A lot of times we romanticize the, the characters in the Bible uh, about how easy their lives must have been at times, and they're kind of clean and pristine and, and all put together a lot of times. But, but John the Baptist, you just can't get that out of him. I mean, he's, he's kind of a mess. I mean, he goes around the countryside wearing burlap and eating locusts and honey for his diet. I mean, he's eating bugs, y'all. Come on. I mean, John the Baptist is, is hard to make look really cool. And so we get to this moment in his life where these emissaries from the religious leaders in Jerusalem come to find out, who is this guy? And this is where we deal then with John has to make a decision. You see, because first, he is tempted to be the center of attention. This is what happens in John's life, is that he gets tempted to be the center of attention. Because when they come, they ask him three really important questions. The first question that they asked him, it's not really included here in the gospel account, but we can take it and we can surmise that they asked him, are you the Messiah? Because it says that he denied this idea, but he, but he testified, I'm not the Messiah. So the very first thing they ask him is, are you the guy that we've been waiting for all this time that, was, that has been prophesied through all of the Old Testament that all the prophets talked about, that when we look back through the history of the, of the Hebrew people, are you the guy that we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? 
And, and then they ask him when he says no to that, they say, well, are you Elijah? Well, this is another huge temptation because Elijah was one of the really cool prophets. I mean, he was the kind of prophet that if you were a Hebrew, you were an Israelite in the first century that you told your little boys about. I mean, he, he was like a man's man kind of prophet. He was the guy that called fire down from heaven. I mean, he was the guy that, that hid in the countryside in caves and had to sneak around to do his ministry. He was really cool. But but John said, no, I, I'm, I'm not Elijah, come back from heaven. And they said, well, then are you the prophet? And, and you might notice from your English translations that we've got that the, the, it's, a, it's a title here, not just a, a general office. It's like the prophet. Are you the capital P prophet? There was this, uh, this kind of mythology that had gone around in the couple of hundred years before Jesus' birth that there would be this one kind of super prophet who was going to show up kind of on the scene, and, and he would be kind of gleaming all the time with the glory of God, and, and, and it would be so evident from his wisdom and his wit and his character that, that he was just something, he was kind of, we would say super Christian, you know, that he was the super Christian of his day. He was the super prophet. And John, again, he says, no. He says, as a matter of fact, the way that he describes himself is, is he says, I, there in verse 27, he said, he is the one coming after me. Now he's talking about the Messiah. And he says, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. The temptation is that John the Baptist could have claimed power and insight like, yeah, I, I, I'm the guy. I'm the prophet. I'm the guy that you've been waiting for. Aren't you glad that I showed up? Look at the, the Superman S on my chest. I am the super prophet. You know, and he could have claimed at this moment a lot of power and insight. He could have demanded respect for being the forerunner of the Messiah. He could, have, he could have said, yeah, I'm the guy that you guys have all been waiting for, so you should all sit down at my feet and just learn from me because I have got so much insight and so much wisdom and so much knowledge. He could have used people's curiosity to his advantage in order to snooker them. He, he could have said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am so important, you should be my pupils, you should pay me. Because that was actually the norm in the first century, that there would be these roving spiritual teachers that they would go to towns and they would gather a group of pupils and these students would pay the rabbi, would pay the teacher, and that's how he made his living. And John never did that. He, but he's faced now with this temptation because they're like, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the guy that we've been waiting for? And, and John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to, to bend down and kneel down in the dirt next to the sandals of the guy that I'm talking about and untie his shoelaces. I mean, like, I'm not even worthy to, to help him take his shoes off. Instead, John the Baptist chooses the role of pointing to the true Messiah. He could have pointed to himself. He could have said, hey, who's awesome and got two thumbs? This guy. You know, he, he, he could have been that. But instead, he, I, I'm, thank you for the pity laugh, the three of you who gave that. Um, but instead, he says, I'm not the guy. I'm the guy standing next to the guy. I, I'm the voice that is just crying out in the wilderness, trying to make a straight path so that people will see him. 
And when John said, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, he's quoting an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, which is pretty cool that this was Isaiah's role, and now it gets to be John's role. And John did live out, it would seem, in the countryside of Israel, where you would, you would call it wilderness. But when he said, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, both he and his predecessor, Isaiah, they didn't mean like the countryside where there's bramble bushes and you're living in a cave and you're getting your water out of a stream and you're having to hunt animals for your evening meal. He meant, I'm a voice in the wilderness of this culture that is awash with selfishness and idolatry. I am a voice crying out in a wilderness, in a world that is filled with sinfulness and selfishness idolatry, and iniquity. I am a voice that is trying to call out through the darkness of this world that something better is on the horizon, that the guy that we're waiting for is right here among us. And John had to be okay with rejection by the world. Here he is, he's tested, he's tempted, where he could be the guy He could be the man of the hour. He could have the reputation. He could be the one that everybody's leaning on because he's got more insight and he's got more spiritual mojo than anybody else. But he was okay with rejection by the world because he had chosen to be a servant of the king. And John chose this work to cut a path through the wilderness so that people could see Jesus. So he's tempted to be the center of attention, but he instead testified to the one who deserves worship. And you and I live in this tension all of the time as people that are faithful members of a church family who engage in ministry activity, who tell our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members that we're Christians. We stand in this tension all the time. That temptation is facing us. Are we going to be tempted to be the center of attention where I need everybody looking at me and the stuff that I've done or the stuff that we've done and how cool we've been? Or are we going to be the ones who testify to the one who deserves worship? You see, because Jesus is the one who is the sacrifice, not us. Jesus is the one that John the Baptist, as he, as he sees him coming that on that next day, he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in that first century, among Hebrew people, they knew that John, when he declared that, he is not talking about just one of the cute little lambs that's in their back pen. They knew that he was referring back to the Old Testament, into the book of Leviticus, into Leviticus chapter 16, where it describes the Day of Atonement. On that one day of the year, when the high priest of Israel would find a lamb that had no blemish and no spots, and they would slay that lamb, and he would take it in to the Holy of Holies, to the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle as a blood offering over the sins of Israel onto the mercy seat, where it was the presence of God, and and that that blood was the covering, atoning sacrifice for sin. Because all throughout the Bible, what we find constantly 
is that it takes blood to cover sin. There is judgment that has to come against sin. And so when he says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I mean, this is a bold, revolutionary statement that we as weekly, often-going kind of church people, we get too used to this statement. We get too accustomed to this statement. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's Jesus. He died for our sins. Oh, oh, that's right. That's Jesus. He's the one who, who gives me forgiveness. Think of the revolutionary nature of what this message is that the God of heaven has stepped out of his glory to become the, the one sacrifice that would cover the sins of the world, that would remove them. Now, you and I have both spilled something at our house at some point. Me, probably more so than you, all right? But every once in a while, you spill a little soup, you, you spill a little coffee. You know, every once in a while, there's a stain on the carpet. And at that point, you have two choices. You can either get a throw rug or you can go clean it. And, and here, what John says about Jesus is not the throw rug. Jesus doesn't just kind of cover up the sin so it can't really be seen, but the stain is still there. What John is saying is that Jesus comes to remove, to take away the sin of the world. Uh, the Bible describes God's forgiveness is that He casts our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west, that he casts our sin into the sea of forgetfulness, that he removes the stain completely from your life. This is what Jesus does, and John says, I want to testify to the guy who is the sacrifice. But he also, he says, that he, the, the, this testimony that he gives is that he's the sacrifice, but also that Jesus is this divine pre-existent one. He says in this passage, he ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. John is again, he is, he, is, he is going all in on the idea that Jesus is not just another spiritual teacher who is able to do some magic tricks. He's not saying this is just a guy who's a little bit better than the rest of us. He's not saying that this is the guy who is the best human who is ever going to live. He is saying, the one who comes after me, this Messiah, is the one who pre-existed our creation because he's God. He's the divine one. And the reason that John knows this is because of the baptism of Jesus. Now, the baptism of Jesus is not recorded in the Gospel of John. It is recorded, however, in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17... It says that, that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan River to be baptized by him, but John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And Jesus answered him, this is in Matthew 3, verse 15, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him to be baptized. And then verses 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In this one moment of Jesus' life, the entire Trinity, 
is gathered in this one spot where the Spirit of God descends upon the Son of God and the voice of God the Father rings out from the heavens, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. That's why John the Baptist could give this testimony in verse 34, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist chose the difficult path. He chose the unexpected path. John the Baptist chose the path that was not going to be easy. There were a lot of days that were not going to be fun. There are going to be days that were going to be filled maybe with cultural rejection or even a bit of ridicule, a little bit of mocking. But he did so because, again, he was okay with rejection by the world because he had made a decision to be a servant of the king. And that's why I want us to embrace the idea that the great goal of the church is to point people to Jesus. We must be a people that want to fill the world with the witness of Jesus. This is the great goal of the church is to point people to Jesus. That's why he says, I've seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And there are some Christians that they've seen. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. They have personally experienced salvation. They have walked with Jesus perhaps for a long time. They've got a prayer life and they have a Bible study time, and they attend worship services, and they go to ministry events, and they go to a life group, and they have seen that Jesus is the Son of God, but they have hesitated to do the testifying work. And this is the very reason for which the church exists. About a hundred years after the life of John the Baptist, there was an early church leader, his name was Tertullian, And he said, we, talking about human beings, are but of yesterday, but we have filled every place among you, the cities, the islands, the fortresses, the towns, the marketplaces, the tribes, the companies, the palace, the senate, the forum. We have left nothing to you but the temple of your gods. Tertullian said that about the evangelistic enterprise of the church. He said, we're going to disappear. We humans... We're not going to be around anymore. But you know what we have done? We have filled every corner of society from the marketplace to the, to the Senate, from the homes to every tribes with a witness of Jesus. And the only thing that those who don't believe have left are the temples of their own gods where they try to take refuge with the false deities that they have trusted in. The mission of God for us is to seek and to save the lost. This is what Jesus came to do. And we belong to Jesus. And so now this is what we do. We go and we look for people who are broken by sin, and who are hurting, and who are lost, and who are wayward, and people who are hard, and and sometimes people who are difficult. And we go and we look for them so that we can testify to them that the guy that I serve, I'm not worthy to unlace his shoes, but he loves us anyway. And he was the Lamb of God who died for us. Even though we're not worthy to even work on his footwear, he's the guy who takes away all of our sin. 
And with Tertullian, we should be the people who say, you know what, I'm not going to be around forever, but while I'm here, I'm going to make sure that the witness of Christ and the message of the gospel fills every place in the world, from the cities to the islands to the towns to the marketplaces, from the senate to the palaces. We're not going to leave any place untouched by the gospel. And that's why we have to stay focused, like John did, that the mission of the believers in Christ is to seek and save the lost, never to just pacify and entertain the saved. It was Charles Spurgeon, the great, the great preacher, who said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Mm. Yeah, sit with that for a second. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every one of us has got a mission field that we live in. It could be your neighborhood. It might be your family. It could be uh, that particular uh, place where you live or where you work. It could be that God is calling you to some other place. The church, we, the believers, and, and it's not the organization. It's not the institution. It's not the building. It's not the campus. It's us. We're the church. We, as the church, exist to draw people to Christ. And if we're not doing that, then all of our programs, from preschool to senior adults, all of our services from Sunday throughout the week, all of our life groups on campus and off, all of our calendaring of activities and compassionate care are a waste if we are not witnessing to the power of salvation in Christ. Now, let me say to you, as those of you in the room, that you're already Christians. Uh, you've already trusted in Christ. The world is going to entice you with your rights for pleasure in this life. Religious ideas are going to tempt you with its demands just to be morally superior to the guy next to you. Depending on who the guy is next to you this morning, that may be hard or easy. Your ego is going to insist that you be the center of attention. And neither we as individuals, nor collectively just as a local congregation, should ever demand that the world take note of us. But rather, we're the guy standing next to the guy. We're not the guy. When people say, are you the one that we've been waiting for who's going to solve all of our problems? We say, no, but I can point you to the guy who can. When they say, are you the guy who's got all sorts of cool spiritual insight and power that when you pray, amazing things happen? You say, no, don't worry about me. Let me tell you about the guy. When they say, are you the one who has got like the spiritual mojo about you? You've read all the Christian books and you've been to the conferences and you've seen all of the musical artists and you're the one who knows more stuff than anybody else. Are you the one that I'm waiting for? We say, no, but let me tell you about the guy that you are waiting for. Jesus is worthy of all of our praise and all of our faith. Because He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's why we celebrate the way we do. Now there's some of you in the room today that you say, I'm probably on the world side of the equation and not the church side of the equation. 
I haven't, I think Jesus is cool, and like I pray and hope that he'll do something in my life, but you, if you had to check the box, yes or no, has there ever been a moment in your life where you surrendered your heart to Jesus, where you said, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus who died on the cross for my sins in my place and then rose from the dead, proving that he has power to forgive and to save, you would have to say, I, I've, I've never done that. Well, I want to invite you to not do that later this afternoon. I don't want to invite you to do it tonight while you're lying in bed thinking big thoughts. I want to invite you to do it right now, right now. I'm not going to make you stand up. You're not going to have to make a speech. You're not going to have to, you don't, you don't have to say anything to anybody else around you. What I want to invite you to do is let me lead you, because let me promise you what's happening right now. If you're a person that you, it would be your, your story, hey, I've never become a Christian. Like, I, I'm religious, I think I'm good for the most part, but I've never trusted Jesus to, like, save me and forgive me. Here's what's happening right now. A, there is a war for your soul. I mean, there are forces that are fighting that you would not put your faith in. In Jesus, because they would rather see you judged and eternally punished because they're cruel. And there are, and there is the Spirit of God that is calling, that is inviting you to trust in Jesus. There's another thing happening right now. There are a multitude of Christians across this room right now that they don't even know who you are and they don't even know your name, maybe but they're actually just, they have spontaneously started praying in their heart of hearts that God would intervene in your life. For those of you Christians that are in the room that weren't doing that yet, now would be a time to really get started with that now. But if you're here today and you're like, I, I, I don't know Jesus in that kind of personal way, but I, I want to. Well, then in just a second, we're all going to bow our heads and we're going to pray and I'm going to verbally lead you through a prayer. And you don't have to say these words. The words I'm going to say are not magic words. They're not words out of, you know, 2 Hezekiah chapter 3, verse 4, 7, and 10. 2 Hezekiah is not in the Bible, by the way. Um, this is just a way that you could cry out from your heart to God that you want the Lamb of God to cover your sins. So let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, I just want to ask that you'll help these friends that are in this room about to make a decision that they will feel sure, that they will feel safe in your care. Lord, for these men and women that are in here today, they're not Christians yet, but they're ready to put their faith in Christ, that you would guide them gently but with certainty. So nobody's looking around, everybody, we're, let's just all be in a spirit of prayer. If you're not a believer and you'd like to become one, you can just pray something like this. Uh, Father in heaven, I know you love me. And I know that Jesus has died for my sins. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm 
I'm broken. I don't have a relationship with you. But I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want to trust what he did to pay for my sins. So I believe. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he is risen from the dead. And I trust him. Jesus, please save me. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for saving me. Thank you for bringing me back from spiritual death and judgment. I trust you. Oh, Father in heaven, I just pray that men and women, teenagers that are in this room, that if they have prayed that prayer, that you would give them confidence and assurance of the salvation that is eternal, that never goes away. That, Lord, that if you are powerful enough to save us, you are powerful enough to keep us. That, Lord, that you are the one who secures our soul for all of eternity by the work of Christ. And, Jesus, now as we celebrate the sacrifice that you gave on our behalf through this practice of the Lord's Supper, I just ask that you would encourage the saints, encourage these Christians that they can walk deeply with you day by day and be the ones who proclaim that you are the great Son of God. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.